Sharai, the podcast co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to a new episode of Sharai, the podcast. My name is Gianluca Parolin. And my name is Serena Tolino. In this episode, we're delighted to have as guest Sumeye Shimshek from the Istanbul 29th of May University. Welcome, Sumeye. Thank you. Welcome also from my side, Sumeye. Uh, we would like to ask you, what do you do in your free time? Do you have any special hobbies or activities you would like to share with us? I have two birds, two budgies, so I spend most of my free time with them. How did you choose them? Well, I'm sorry to say that, but based on their appearance, because, you know, they're really beautiful. And, well, one of them can speak around a hundred words. So Have they been around for a long time? They're nearly two years. Wow. Have they been a partner or witnesses to your PhD progress? Oh, yes. Well, we have adopted them during the pandemic. And, you know, I'm studying in my house during the pandemic. So they're really helpful, actually. So what have you been working on in your PhD? I'm studying on female slaves in the 18th century Ottoman Empire from a legal perspective. My aim is to investigate the legal theory of female slavery in Istanbul at the time and to examine the Ottoman practices and distinctive futures of female slavery and to analyze how Ottomans legitimize these unique practices. But you've been interested in the Ottoman legal system for longer, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I have. I have mostly studied on the Ottoman legal system and my main focus was on the modernization period and my MA thesis was on an Ottoman Sheikhul Islam fatwa collection which was called Ilavil Mejmu Jadide and dated back in the late 19th century because it is the product of the modernization period there were some unique fatwas on matters that were you know, new to the Ottoman society, such as dental fillings, whether they prevent ablution or not, or if you are traveling by train, would you become a musafir and shorten prayers? Or if you are, I mean, if getting smallpox vaccine is permissible by the religion, and if a sultan is able to force people to get vaccinated. Very contemporary in a way. So what made you turn the clock back to the 18th century then? The time frame of my research is the 18th century because it is an overlooked period between the Ottoman classical age and the modernization period. But we can say that it marks a milestone for slavery studies because slavery um, became tightly dependent on the slave trade in this period. You know, the conquests had almost stopped in the 18th century in the Ottoman Empire, and the practice of enslaving war captives, which was the only legitimate way of enslavement in Islamic law, has also stopped. And in addition to this, there was a widespread custom in the Ottoman society 
people were emancipating slaves after seven to nine years of service. So slavery was not continuing from generation to generation. And because of that, there was a constant decrease in the slave population. So to fill the gap, slave trade became very important in the century. Could you find in your sources any evidence on where enslaved people and the specific period you are looking at were coming from mostly? Well, from the Black Sea region and from Africa as well. There was um, different ways of acquiring slaves. And so you are working on archival sources. Is that correct? Yes. My primary sources are Korti Kords, Kadisijilleri and Fetwa collections of the 18th century. You know, corticords are regarded as the most reliable sources of the Ottoman legal history, and they are the direct reflections of social life. Fetwa collections are also equally important as they draw a theoretical outline of a legal topic in, you know, form of short questions and answers, and also they reveal the judicial response to the newly emerging situations and practices in the society. I was thinking, I'm sure you're aware, in the last, so I would say, 15 years maybe, and especially then in the last five years, there has been really a lot of research on slavery in the Middle East, especially for what regards the Ottoman Empire. And I would say that the Ottoman Empire is in a way a special case within Middle Eastern studies because, as you mentioned, because of archival sources that are very important for legal studies, that we do not have for other parts of or other periods of Islamic history. So what what is new in your research in comparison to what's going on around the world in this regard? Well, I am mostly studying on household slaves. I think it is a mostly neglected subject. You know, the earlier slavery studies were mostly on harem slaves only in terms of female slavery. But, um, you know, female slaves in the Ottoman Empire had employed in various areas, both as elite slaves like in harem, such as concubines, singers or poets, and as domestic servants such as cooks, nursemaids, cleaners and laundry women. And I'm mostly focusing the domestic ones. And I am trying to detect the unique practices regarding them. And especially for the period that you are covering, you are interested in possible avenues in court for female slaves to seek freedom, right? And you identify two main ways in which that happens. What are they? Well, there are actually more than two ways. But we understand from the court records that the most common way of manumission was voluntary manumission as a charity for the sake of Allah. And it was also possible to emancipate a slave in return for a designated service or a certain amount of money or time. And it was called contracted manumission, kitabet, and it was also fairly common. But there are some other ways, like the slave owner could manumit their slave as a bequest, And alternatively, there was a special type of manumission that would be valid right before the master's death, and it was called tedbir. 
and a slave woman could also acquire freedom by giving birth to the master's child, and it was called Istilat, and the slave was called Umuelet. And if there was any injustice towards such slaves, for example, if the owner tried to sell his pregnant concubine, then the slave had the legal right to apply to the court. So these ways of gaining freedom was based on Islamic law and applied in the Ottoman Empire as well. But there were some unique practices, as I mentioned before. For instance, while Islamic law did not determine a specific time for slavery, it was common in the Ottoman society to emancipate slaves after seven to nine years, seven years for black slaves and nine years for white slaves. And if the master did not release the slave after seven to nine years, the slave had the legal right to apply to a court and demand freedom. And it was also the same procedure for mistreatment and illegal enslavement. So for service and mistreatment, what sort of grounds would courts use to justify the, the freeing of the well, It was based on the widespread custom. You know, custom is accepted as source of Sharia in Islamic law. And it is not, you know, against Islamic law. So they were emancipating their slaves. Would they mention that? Would they express that in the ruling that you have seen? Well, no, there actually there are not so many court records on this subject, but we see this subject on the writings of Ottoman writers and some foreign writers as well. But the foreign writers think that it is based on Islamic law, but the Ottoman writers explain it that it is based on custom. And on which aspect of your fascinating thesis will you be focusing for the paper you will present in London? Well, I study female slavery in three stages you know, becoming a slave and maintaining a life as a slave and gaining free freedom. I will be focusing on gaining freedom, a subject of my presentation. And we definitely look forward to hearing the full paper, Sumeya. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you also from my side. See you in London. Thank you. See you.